Hello everyone and welcome to a very special Motorsport Podcast Highlights show in association with Mercedes-Benz. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer. We teamed up with Mercedes-Benz earlier last year to do a series of motorsport podcasts. And we started that month with Derek Warwick. Since then, we've sat down with motorsport lunch with man, Simon Taylor, Jochen Mass, Cosworth's co-founder, Mike Costin, Lord March, and the British Touring Car Championship boss, Alan Gow. We've taken all of them, compacted the best bits from them into one show, and here it is now. Enjoy. Now, Simon is obviously famous for the Lunch With series, and you have, over the past 10 years, you have done 125 Lunch With pieces for Motorsport Magazine. So, what we thought we'd do today is discuss all of the guests, how they came about, and all the stories associated with them. And obviously to be uh, properly lunch with, we're having lunch today. And I can tell you, to, to be authentic to the articles, uh, Simon has just had a, a beautifully presented, not very English wrap, and washed down with some sparkling water. It was very important in all these rather glamorous lunches that I had all over the world. I mean, everywhere from Canada to New Zealand. Um, I always stuck to water because when you're talking to these people, a lot of them are pretty sharp. Um, Max Mosley, who was the first one I ever did, this series never set out to be something that would happen every month. I was sent by the then editor of Motorsport to do an interview with Max Mosley because I knew Max from way back in the 60s when we were both uh, trying to race Clubman's cars. He was almost as bad a racing driver as I was. And uh, he was then the president of the FIA. And of course, being a brilliant barrister, he was extremely good at making a journalist think what he wanted them to think. I knew him well enough to be able to work my way through some of his uh, clever um, sort of fences and ditches that he would put in the way of the conversation. And that's why I got sent. And I went to Monte Carlo. We had lunch sitting in Casino Square. It seemed to go pretty well. Um, he was certainly very interesting to talk to. When I got back to London and submitted my copy, the sub-editor headed it, Lunch with Max Mosley. And that kind of started the trend. Uh, readers wrote in and said they quite liked it. Uh, the editor then said, well, you better do a few more. And I then did them every single month uh, until this month. Uh, However, the significant thing really was that when they started, they were a normal length, um, three pages of the magazine perhaps. And it was really when Damien Smith joined the magazine and said, look, we've got to try and do something a bit different. If you can write five and a half or 6,000 words and make it interesting, I will give you eight pages. And that was really a great breakthrough because it then allowed me to sit down if the... Um, the guest was indulgent enough, and usually they were prepared to do this. Uh, I could sit down with them for three hours 
or in the case of John Watson, at quarter to seven, we were standing in the dark in the pub car park, and I was desperate to leave, and I couldn't <laughs> shut Watty up. Um, so we, we had, I, I had the ability, really, to go much further uh, than most interviews would, would be able to do, most journalists would be able to do. The other thing, the whole point about having lunch, is that if a journalist is interviewing um, a, a personality, a driver, whatever, in a press conference, there are huge pressures of time, and also, because it's a press conference and there's probably a PR standing behind his shoulder, and there are all sorts of worries about saying the wrong thing and upsetting the sponsor, it's always a very stilted affair. If you're actually sitting down and having a relaxed lunch, and even if I'm only drinking sparkling water, I try to make sure that the uh, the guest has whatever he likes to drink. You have a, l a relaxed lunch, and it is extraordinary how people are then able to talk in a much more honest and direct way. And that's really been the key, I think, to uh, making these things work. Chris Amon, mm. because he was one of your greatest lunch widths from your perspective as well as the readers. He, he absolutely was. Um, I mean, Chris Amon's great days in motorsport when he was driving for Ferrari um, they didn't really coincide with me. I was a motoring journalist, by, or motorsports journalist by then, but I wasn't really covering Grand Prix. I was covering kind of club meetings at Lytton Hill. So I never really knew Chris Amon in period. He then disappeared to New Zealand. And so he was a man that I had admired from afar. I also knew, just from having followed what he was doing when he was in Formula One, that he was, in terms of speed one of the very quickest of his day. I mean, he was one of the top three drivers in terms of actual speed and ability during his era. He was an unaggressive man. Maybe uh, this is not so much in the cockpit as outside it. Um, and when I did my uh, lunch with him, he said that Max Mosley, when he was first driving for March, had promised him his retainer in three chunks. And he got his first chunk, his first four-monthly chunk. Uh, the second one, he had to chase and chase and chase. Did eventually get it. His third one, he never got it. And he said, you know, Max Mosley still owes this to me today. But it's somehow so typical of Chris Amon. He just shrugged and left it at that. He, he wasn't an aggressive, hard man doing deals or in the paddock. And that equates with his unassuming modesty. He's about the only Formula One driver I've ever met who wasn't arrogant or egotistical. I mean, a lot of them are very charming and they hide their arrogance and their um, selfishness. But in order to be a great Formula One driver, you have to be absolutely loaded down with self-belief. And they all are. Some of them hide it better than others. But Chris was genuinely uh, uh, an unpretentious uh, man, I think is the best way I can say it. He was also incredibly, I, he didn't really know me from Adam, uh, but I went to New Zealand, I got in touch with him and said, um, I'm going to be able, I was actually in Australia at the time, it sounds very good to say, you know, I went to lunch in New Zealand, implying that I actually flew from Heathrow to New Zealand. I was actually in Australia, and I worked out that I could go to Auckland, still a fair old distance, 
uh, and I could be there for 24 hours. And I managed to get in touch with Chris Amon and said, look, um, I, I know you live a long way from Auckland, but is there any way that I could sort of get to you and we could have a bit of a lunch and, and, and I could interview you? And he said, look, come to Auckland. I live in Lake Torpo and I'll come to you. And once I'd got my head around the geography of New Zealand, he actually drove for six hours to come and have lunch with me. And we had lunch for maybe three hours and then he turned around and went home again, which is an extraordinarily unselfish thing to do. And he didn't just want to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about his mates in Formula One particularly. Uh, what I always did with these lunches was I would say to the guest, I will have lunch with you anywhere you like. You choose your venue. I don't mind where it is. And uh, as I've said in the piece that I just wrote for, for Motorsport, they varied enormously. Brian Redmond wanted to go to a fish and chip shop. Uh, Keke Rosberg said he didn't eat lunch and he'd like a cup of coffee. Um, lots of other similar ones like that. Uh, but he said, yes, I know exactly where I want to eat. And he took me to, or he, I met him, he sent me instructions, and I met him at a funny little cafe in a rather um, sort of suburban part of Auckland. And we had a perfectly good but not very smart lunch there. And he said, do you know why I chose this place to eat? Next door have a look next door. We went out from the restaurant, we looked next door, it was a sort of semi-detached building, and next door there was what looked like a disused small garage and filling station with a little flat upstairs. And he pointed to the upstairs window and he said, that's where Bruce McLaren was born. This was Pop McLaren's little garage, and that's why I wanted to come here. And in a way, that kind of sums up Chris Amon, just an extraordinary man. I mean, I could talk all night about some of the people who really stuck with me. Sid Watkins, um, who I think everybody in Formula One, when he was the, 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 the Formula One doctor, everybody adored him. Uh, he was no respecter of persons. He would be equally as rude uh, to Bernie Eccleston or to... Um, some minor marshal but he would also be equally friendly to anybody and I got to know him reasonably well in, in the paddock and I was only um, you know I was just a kind of one of the hordes of journalists milling around but um, he saw me walking uncomfortably once in the paddock spa and he looked at me and he said what the hell's the matter with you lad and I said oh Sid I've, I've got a bad back and he said well Come and see me. We'll see what we can do about it. Well, I was simply too shy and diffident to do that. I mean, Sid Watkins was looking after Formula One drivers. And um, no way did I feel that a minor journalist should go and see him about his bad back. And uh, so I finally went to see another back specialist who said, yes, we can give you um, a very complicated operation. Um, and it'll cost your insurers X thousand pounds, and we'll see you on Monday. On the Sunday, the day before, I was at a motor racing dinner, and Sid was there, and I said to Sid, you'll be very pleased with me, Sid, because I'm finally doing something about sorting out my back. And he said, oh, good show, lad. Who's doing it? 
So I told him the name of the man who was doing it. And he said, don't let him near you, lad. Give me a ring in the morning, I'll sort you out. So having had a rather sleepless night, I thought, well, Sid was into his third whiskey, so I'm sure this man I'm seeing in Harley Street is pretty good. And I don't really want to bother Sid Watkins with all this. So I did nothing and got my little bag packed to go off that Monday afternoon to have my operation. And at about ten past one, my mobile phone rang. I don't know where Sid got my mobile phone. He said, hell, lad, you haven't phoned me. I told you last night to phone me. What's going on? Now, cancel that that man you're seeing this afternoon, and I'll do you tomorrow. So I did as I was told. I cancelled the man. Sid Watkins operated on my back. And it's a very long story, but, I mean, that shows you the sort of man Sid Watkins... He treated, as I say, Bernie Eccleston and a minor journalist in exactly the same way. And when I went to have lunch with him, uh, we had lunch in his kitchen, and I was... I'd arrived there... Um, I'd flown up to Edinburgh and I'd um, hired a little car and I was ready to fly back that afternoon. But lunch, sitting around his kitchen table, cooked by his lovely wife Susan, went on. And suddenly it was half past six and Sid said, well, we'd better go out to dinner, lad. So we went out to dinner. We came back from dinner. We sat in Sid's uh, study. He got out a bottle of single malt whiskey. And the stories kept coming until three in the morning. And I then crawled into his spare room bed, slept for three hours, and then crept out of the house next morning at six o'clock, went and caught a later plane. Wonderful man. Just just extraordinary. I was going to say, uh, I was chatting to Derek Warwick about Sid at the Motorsport Hall of Fame evening. Sid was honoured this year, as you know. And um, he kept, I mean, Derek had quite a few sizable accidents in Formula One and he was telling me about dealing with Sid and he he was talking about Monza in 1990 and how um, he'd felt fine and got in a spare car, Sid got him out of it and said I need to check you and what's your name and so on and so forth and Derek had told him oh Nelson Piquet and um, Derek and Sid had said no I need you know you've got to be serious about this and Derek mucked him around for a while until Sid got Bernie and said tell him unless he answered my question sensibly, he's not, he's not racing. At which point Derek came round and so on and so forth. Three years later, he rolled during the morning warm-up at Hockenheim, finished upside down in the gravel, went to see Sid, and um, Sid checked him over and he found, but he found a bit of gravel in his ear, and he got it out and said, I think this one might be from Monza in 1990, <laughs> which, I just, which I just thought was as oh, a, well, just, just a lovely, yeah. lovely anecdote. Yeah. I mean, I'm always asked, um, you know, who was my favourite? And it's a question I never answer because they're all so different. I mean, you imagine Richard Petty, this emperor of NASCAR. It can't possibly be disappointing talking to Richard Petty. Well, amazing. I mean, I I was being shown around the museum that he's got in his place um, by one of his acolytes. And the door at the other end of the museum opened and this enormously tall man, even taller because he was wearing high-heeled cowboy boots and had a and cowboy Stetson. hat uh, and the dark glasses. And he was carrying this little red cup. And I'm delighted to say the um, article that's coming out in Metasport, there is a shot of Richard Petty and you can see the little red cup. 
reason for the red carp is, of course, he chews tobacco. And every so often, I mean, it's very polite and, you know, well-behaved and charming, but every so often the red carp would come up and a little jet of <laughs> tobacco s- juice would shoot out of it. Um, but uh, it, it, extraordinary, because when you actually probe under these people, as you know, Richard Petty's son raced not as well as Richard Petty. Richard Petty's grandson also raced, and by the time he was 18, he looked as though he was going to be every bit as good as his grandfather. And at the age of 19, he was killed. And in his memory, uh, Petty, who owns thousands of acres around his little bit of Carolina, um, set up a place which is really like a smaller version of Disney World. Um, with all the appropriate rides and stuff. Uh, And this is for children who are terminally ill or children who are desperately badly disabled. has a full medical staff running it. And Petty just said, uh, come down the road and I'll show you this place I've got. I mean, I've never read anywhere else about Richard Petty doing this. He doesn't make a fuss about it. But he just does it because it reminds him of his grandson. Extraordinary man. As we're on Americans, I'm, I know I'm inter- You're about to ask a question, but I, I just have to tell one of my favorite. One of my favorite. This is such an easy presenting job. It's great. Please, <laughs> please carry on. Stopping me talking is never easy. Um, I went to do Mario Andretti, another huge hero of mine. Mario Andretti lives in an extraordinary circular house, and in the basement sort of going round the circle. There are garages in which he's got various cars, all of which are on the button. And after we'd talked in his house for a bit, he said, okay, let's go and have some lunch. So we went round and he kind of walked around selecting a car, selected a Lamborghini Countach. We got into this Countach and roared off down the road into downtown Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is where, where Mario Andretti's dad and Aldo and Mario, his two sons, settled when they came in as immigrants, Mario was 14. So typical of Mario, he could now live anywhere in the world, but he still lives in this rather one-horse town of Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is where he arrived, speaking no English at all, at the age of 14. So we went to downtown Nazareth, PA, and it's not really full of Michelin restaurants. He took me to um, a hamburger joint, and we ate a hamburger, But, of course, Mary also owns a vineyard in California, in Napa Valley. And he'd made sure that he'd obviously phoned ahead to the um, hamburger joint and said, when you serve us our hamburger, do make sure there's a bottle of my wine on the table. Now, the other half of this question is that I also went to see A.J. Foyt in Texas. Uh, And the way that happened was that I was having lunch with, for motorsport, Kenny Brack, who, of course, won the Indy 500 for A.J. Foyt. And he was saying, you know, who haven't you done yet? Who would you like to do? I said, God, I'd, I'd love to do A.J. Foyt. But I kind of, I mean, A.J. Foyt is 80 and not the easiest of men. Um, and I don't quite know how to approach it. And Kenny said, well, I've got his mobile phone. I've, I've got his number on my mobile. I'll dial him up. So he dialed Texas. It was probably then about breakfast time in Texas. And he said, uh, hi, AJ, it's Kenny Brack here. Chit-chat, chit-chat. He said, now, I'm with a, an English journalist who'd like to come out and interview you. 
There was a very long pause at the end of the phone. And then AJ, I, I could sort of hear, you know, listening to Kenny Bragg's phone. Uh, and after this long pause, I could hear AJ Foyt's text and voice saying, Is this Limey a good guy? <laughs> so Kenny said, Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. You better tell him to come. <laughs> so I flew to, um, to Texas. I went to see AJ Foyt who was marvellous, rather large now, but absolutely as uncompromisingly Texan as he always was. And he took me to a hamburger joint uh, because he's, he's not in, um, in urban, t- um, you know, uh, he, he, he's right out in the wilds, really. And there's just kind of Texan plains, nothing around. And there's a little one-horse town which has a hamburger joint. So he said, we better go and have a hamburger. Will that do you? And of course, I was so anxious to say the right thing and, and, and sort of stay on the right side of this rather terrifying old man that I said, oh, yes, AJ, hamburgers are great. In fact, when I went to see Mario Andretti, we had a hamburger. <laughs> Big mistake. Because, <coughs> of course, I'd forgotten that AJ Foyt and Mario Andretti have history. Uh, and he kind of, when I said this, the temperature in the in the room went down a couple of degrees. Anyway, we went to have our hamburger, and in the middle of um, in the middle of lunch, AJ looked across at me and said, "How's your hamburger?" I said, "Oh, it's AJ, it's very good. It's lovely. Is it better than Andretti's?" <laughs> <laughs> were you were you ever frightened of not being able to come up with these new ventures and new ideas? Uh, no, not really. I mean. All that 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 sort of story of the of sport at Goodwood hadn't really been particularly developed or told at that point. So that actually wasn't on that that particular sort of angle, which is now absolutely critical to everything we do, wasn't uh, really developed. My my father had had uh, brilliantly sort of got hold of the race course and uh, determinedly um, turned that into a, a um, you know a, a successful. You know, retained its 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 whole position in terms of the English summer and the social season, but also turned it into a commercially successful operation. Um, but you know, things were very difficult. They moved here in 1968. Tax was 98 percent, and they moved in thinking they'd give it a go. And if it didn't really, they, no one had any money really. They spent, you know, I think they spent a hundred thousand on the whole house, which was a lot of money then. But still, you look now, and it's just. And um, and they had to they you know the house hadn't really been properly lived in by my grandparents since the war, so it was in in very bad shape, and um, and no one lived here. In fact, I mean it was just opened up for the horse racing and the motor racing, and then and it was shut up again. So it was a massive. Uh, so my parents really took on a massive. That was a that was a huge job, to just put some processes in and kind of get it going, and um, and then really when we developed them, having had the idea to. to try and get the motor circuit going and got the, and really got excited and got the bit between our teeth there then fe- fell into the festival speed which was a piece of luck really I mean it was it was really a, the motor circuit definitely wouldn't have turned out the way it has if we hadn't done the festival speed first so we were given the opportunity you know what felt like a, a, you know it felt at the time like we'd been dealt a difficult card but actually it was the best best result really so we had seven years to work that out and seven years to realize actually the great thing about the motor circuit was it was untouched so let's just kind of put it back to how it was 
And then the idea came because we, the other leases came back, the golf course lease we managed to get back, this lovely building, the kennels came back. I then thought, well, actually, we've got, there are all these sports. Bizarrely, we have all these sports here. They may, all, you know, they may have been asleep, but actually they're easy, quite easy to wake up. And um, suddenly we, we, you know, we have horse racing, motor racing, golf, flying, shooting and cricket all in one place, which is a unique story. And it's the authenticity around those, which is what, what good was really all about. As you said, I mean, over 300 years, the family have developed all these sports. That's, that's a unique thing. But what's really unusual, um, really, really unusual, is the fact that they shared, it, they, were, they, were, they were shared in a way. So they may have raced their horses on the top of the downs. Lots of aristocrats did in the 18th century race their horses around the place against their friends. But they didn't, it wasn't a shared experience. Like that. The public weren't invited in. And likewise with my grandfather, he loved his, he loved motor racing. But so it's interesting. Why did he suddenly want to hold a public? Why didn't he just, why didn't he just go motor racing there? But he decided to, he decided to hold a, a motor racing event. And um, and actually, from the moment the house was built, it was open to the public as well. So I would, you know, I'm very, very flattered, and I love it when people say to me at the festival speed, God, you know, it's been the best weekend. Of, you know, people do, you know, say this has been the best weekend I've ever had. When you know, a 16 year old says that, and then they, that's fantastic best we have ever had in our lives, but why do you let all these people in? Why do you want all these people? Why do you, why do you let us all in here for, you know, uh, for the weekend, 200,000 people? And actually, I think it's, it's just a very good, the place, that's, it's, I, that's sort of in the air. It's not really a, it's, it's just what the place is about in a way. And um, we don't want to, um, uh, I'd love to take all the credit for that, but I don't think, I think it's just kind of how the place has, has developed itself and, and the place has a very particular, style and atmosphere and and that as, as that reflects well on on um a lot of people in, you know being able to enjoy it and i hope having a very private experience because for me the, the 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 real excitement is putting on something where we have a lot of people but everyone feels they're having a very their own particular moment there was a great i think it's true to say as well there was a great passion out there waiting to be satisfied in a way at the beginning of the festival of speed people used to ring up and say I hear there's a V16 BRM coming to to this event that you're doing, and, and I I saw it when I was a boy, and I'm going to be there whether I even if I have to crawl there. So there was that, wasn't there? There was a, a demand for this for that kind of event, I think, and the same with the circuit in the sense that when it shut, people were so disappointed. You know, why why is the Duke shut the circuit? What's the problem? Why where are we going to go now? So I think there was all that. I mean, 25,000 people turned up for the first Festival of Speed. We thought there might be 10 people. Yeah, I mean, that was a surprise, wasn't it? I mean, you know, you say you sort of lucked into the Festival of Speed. I don't think it's obviously as simple as that, and it never is. But I think you were actually... No, we really did. Oh, right. Believe me. Yeah. Um, but I think you were quite surprised with the, the sheer numbers. That yeah, well, I think what Rob up. said, I mean, obviously Rob was there at the beginning. Rob was the founding father. Um, uh, we had no idea of the pent-up demand. Uh, we thought there was an interest... And I guess, you know, now we say that we we did the festival speed because we wanted to sort of see how much interest was. Actually, we did the festival speed because they told us we couldn't do something down there, and we were bloody well wanted, you know, we bloody well wanted to do something. So we thought, well, they can't stop us doing it in front of the house because of the way the planning regulations work. We'll just, we'll, let's try it there. And then we've got a bit more, I suppose. We had to put a bit more of a serious sort of feel around the whole thing. So we said, well, look, we'll do as a little test. Let's see if there's any interest in in uh, Goodwood and motorsport, whether anyone still makes that connection. And um, Rob's right in, in the sense then that 
you know, we realised very quickly, and it was a great feeling. I mean, I think both of us would say, you know, one of the best feelings ever, um, for sure, was the, on the Sunday night. You know, we had such a, both good and bad in a funny way, but it had been such a sort of tumultuous weekend of, you know, ecstatic joy, huge amount of disappointment, terrible moments, you know, poor Chaz guy was killed on the first morning, you know, that was a pretty, I just thought it was all over at that point, we just thought, well, we've you know, done a terrible thing and it's, it's just, it's finished. Um, so it was a weird, it was a weekend that lasted for a year in a way, but as you said, we were expecting, well, we were told, uh, I think the BARC told us we'd be lucky to get two and a half, three thousand people for something like that, you know, a hill climb, in, you know, Kind of not it's very, probably a fair assumption to be honest. I and we'd never seen it as a hill climb, so I would say that was the difference. We'd never said no. This is not. This is not a hill climb. Yeah. This is this is something different. And then of course Doug Nye and Robert Brooks got very involved. They were extremely helpful and um, supportive in terms of sort of vision and what cars we, you know. And then they obviously had access to a lot of the owners. So we thought, well, actually, let's just put something very different together. Then we got a little bit of sponsorship, amusingly, from Honda, Aston Martin. Robert, of course, uh, Robert uh, Brooks, as it was then, and Citroen a little bit, um, Aston Martin. Um, and that was enough to s cover some of the basic, some of the basic costs. And we thought, well, if anyone comes, then hopefully that'll be, you know. And amazingly, uh, you know, I've told the t story many times, but I, you know, I, d I wasn't sleeping much that week before. It was pouring with rain, actually. And, um, we were, I'm actually, I painted the bridge myself in the pouring rain, get, getting covered in white paint because it just, because the paint, it was just, an, it was pretty, the week before was pretty stressful. And I also ended up pretty much parking the cars. I remember standing on the side of the road, you know, I remember the Mason Styrons arriving, sort of waving them in, you go over there. And then poor Paul Ormond at Honda, who I'm sure many people will know who are listening to this. Uh, I can remember ringing him up on that first morning and giving him absolute hell down the phone saying, Paul, you promised me the sign-on tent. You know, you told me you got, it was only you looking for like 10 by 10 tent, if that, I mean, feet I'm talking about. It was tiny, size of this, smaller than this room. Uh, you know, where is it? He said, oh, don't worry, it's in, it's in the back of my car. You know, and I said, well, I'm, they're, wait, they're queuing to get in and we haven't got the tent. So, you know, it was that, it was, so we didn't really deserve the success in many ways, but uh, we certainly tried hard. I mean, that, that's, so I think one thing we did, we did realise was that it did have a lot, we didn't completely stumble on it in the sense that we felt it had great potential and we did try. So we did think, how are we going to market this? How can we get it out to a lot of people? How can we get, you know, how can we get people excited? And I think maybe for the first time we presented it in a way that no event like that had been presented in the sense that we were presenting it to the public, not to the competitors. So it wasn't a competitor event in the sense that it was only, for, it was only about entry fees and stuff. It was actually about the people coming to watch it and, our model ever since then has been the no there's no entry fee for a Goodwood event. And what and so when you look out the window now on a, on a festival of speed morning, do you sometimes scratch your head and wonder how you've got to where it is now? Because I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's odd. To, I've only been here a couple of times when there isn't anything here. Um, but during the festival of speed weekend slash you know four day weekend, it's I mean, it's, there's a whole town out there, and it, it really, especially with these manufacturer buildings, which are incredible, actually, just on their own. Um, do you ever think, blimey, how, how on earth has this happened? It's because of what a huge progression from that first event in '93. It is. I don't. I don't very. Much, it's bizarre how you just kind of it. It just. It just um, uh, goes on. Um, 
uh, and you know, I guess it suddenly got big, and you don't really. I mean, you, it's it's when people remind me, just even where it was ten years ago, actually, or seven years ago, how much it's grown in in, in uh, since then, even. But it's uh, we were told the other day it was the biggest biggest greenfield site build in the world, in terms of actual scale from nothing. You know, there's nothing. There's actually a little bit under the ground there in terms of infrastructure, but basically there's nothing there. Uh, and um, we put enough power to, for the whole of Chichester, so we could run the whole of Chichester with the amount of power that goes in, in there. <laughs> so it's huge for generator companies, trackway companies. You know, it's a massive amount of. And you, I don't know how many square meters we cover, but there's 200 acres out there. But it's, it's a huge build. I think it's quite nice to sort of rewind and go back to um, the Lotus days. How how did you first? I'll come to you first, Mike. Um, how did you first? meet Colin and um, how did it all start? Uh, well, I'd, I hadn't had anything to do with any form of motor racing. I'd been to the odd motor, motor race as a spectator. Um, and, uh, but a friend, friend of mine, another apprentice, the Humberland apprentice, uh, Peter Ross, he suggested to Colin that I would be a likely lad to um, give him a hand because he's got a lot of work on and uh, on Mark Six cars, and the Allen, he'd split from the Allen brothers. So um, I did a deal with Colin, basically, that uh, we'd work uh, in our spare time to find to, to build kits for the Mark Six. And uh, when we got to number nine, that would be our works car, and uh, we would uh, run that in racing. And in, in that was 1953, and we would share the driving, and that was the big carrot because. Uh, I really fancied doing a bit of racing, although I'd got no idea what it was all about. Uh, the first race, Colin briefed me to uh, if I if I could get behind Phil De Souta, who was the hot shoe at the time, in 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 that uh, fo form of racing. And uh, he said, "Follow him, and you'll learn a lot." And uh, so I did that. And uh, that mind you, that was the last time I followed him. I ended up in front after that, but. Uh, yeah, so that was that was how how I started with Colin, and then Keith came along uh, as a, a student from in his uh, vacation period from Imperial College, and started working for us. And uh, in those days, of course, I was his boss, um, and uh, we we struck up a friendship. And I had the greatest respect for his the way he approached his engineering, and uh, that really blossomed because when he came and uh, worked for us full time as the development engineer on the on the five speed uh, gearbox the queer box that was um we were in consultation with each other as to what the mods would be that he would be putting in and um he did a fantastic job really but colin didn't appreciate it uh whereas i thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread it really was even though he was, you know, uh, a young, uh, you know, a young student, ex-student. Uh, in fact, uh, somebody put a notice on his on his desk saying, "Who needs experience? I'm I'm a, I'm a college student." Do you? I mean, of all the things that you raced, do you look back on that time as particularly fondly because the racing was so good, um, and you know there were, there were good names, there were good drivers in there. All the cars are quite evenly matched. Um, surely it must be some of the best racing you, you had. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, no. Look, I mean, a you worked <laughs> upwards. You could see the road going this way. 
And uh, of course, it was nice. It was, you know, whatever, everything was fresh. And every race was a new venture. Oh, you know, Nürburgring in the rains, rain again. And um, I was running only on, on uh, three cylinders because there was some water accumulating in the plug holder. And, um, but then everybody went around the Südkehre, which was still the long loop, the long right hand sort of corner, and then started run again. Everybody went down to the inside, into the water. I was passing everybody around the top. And um, so I was first. I had a whole Nürburgring for myself. And I came back after one lap, and they all looked at me, and I couldn't see anything on the tower. I couldn't see any signs or anything. I had a one-minute lead. <laughs> I had a one-minute lead after one lap. Wow. And then I spun, but I didn't know. So I spun at Brünchen, I had some aquaplaning, but didn't stall, yeah, I stole the engines, but it didn't hit anything. Just sort of sat there on the side of the road and looking up to the corner where they should have appeared any second. And I, we still have batteries, and it, it coughed back into life. And I plucked it in the first gear carefully and continued. One minute, 10 seconds. <laughs> and so on, so wow. that was nice. Uh, one with a second. I saw it with a, with a minute at the end, with a broken right rear suspension, needing the whole road. But uh, you know, it was good. things like that. Of course, you never forget, and you know you can do it. You know that you have a little more than most of the others. So. Um, we've got lots of readers' questions, so I'll come on to those in a, in a second. But we just mentioned James Hunt, who you met mm. sort of Formula Three time. But obviously, you're, you know, you'd, he sort of came back into your life again when you were at McLaren, and he joined McLaren for that famous '76 season. Um, he, and you, you were sort of you were firm friends. How, how, what was he like in F3? And then when you got to F1, was he very much the same person between those two times, or, or he was he was sort of a, a bigger a, no. you know, character when he got to Formula One? No, he was pretty much the same. Well, he got a bigger character then, of course. Once he joined Hiskus and he won a race, then he became. And as the popularity grew around him and all that, he felt he had to live up to it. And so sometimes it led him into some silly things, which was we could laugh about, but you could also see, it, look at it with a sort of a doubtful eye whether that's the best thing for him in the long run. I said, "Why do you, what are you trying to to run after?" And so on. We sometimes talked about it, and he just laughed and so on. <laughs> but, you know, I knew him from before, but I saw him one night. I entered from Germany with my Ford Capri at the time, going into London. I rented a little flat, Lansdowne Road, opposite Holland Park. Anyway, so I was on my way there, and suddenly from the side street, without any sort of looking anywhere, a Porsche came out sideways, you know. I thought, it can only be James, the way he drove. So I followed him somewhere, and then I looked, of course it was James, so we went to his place. And it was, it was a lively evening. It wasn't evening anymore, it was a lively night. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, they were different days, weren't they? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the Capri. I was, I was going to come onto this later, but your first Le Mans was in a V6 Capri, wasn't it? I, I, and you That's left right. absolutely <coughs> hating it, or, you, or did you hate it before you went to Le Mans? No, no, no. no. Seventy-two was the first time, and of course we drove with the Ford Capris, but uh, was first time confronted with this field of sports prototypes, and us with a car which was quick all right but not as quick it was 50 60 70 kilometers slower than the prototypes so then you were constantly glued you didn't want to be making nuisance of yourself you know and you try to be out of the way on the you know drive on the sensible side so that you're not in the way of this 
Matras and Alphas and Ferraris and Porsches and you know you thought damn you know there's another one coming and you know I was just at the end of you know the air was going right into the middle sun and I saw these cars these lights coming out very quick and it was a bunch of four cars Marco was one of them and um, you know they I stopped on the left and I sort of half turned and I stopped and Marco was spinning and he just missed me with his nose to my car would have not done great great uh, damage but anyway so still stopped and I waved him I said yeah it's all yours so they took off and I thought damn it anyway and then through the night and it was not really very pleasant and it was not the racing as such because you couldn't really race properly to me there wasn't a non-event in terms of racing yeah. you know it was not the 24 hours which which irked me or anything like that just a mixture of cars yeah, sure. and of course I just met uh, Joachim Bonnier early on you know, a few weeks earlier at Jackie Stewart's house, and uh, he got killed the night running over some Ferrari, in the in the mill sun coming down in the this fast right hander sort of can't even blame the Ferrari guy either because it was just the nature of mm. the race. And as a faster car driver, you were responsible for all your actions more than the other guy. I mean, there was a responsibility for both naturally. But uh, on the other hand, you're the faster one, and sometimes the guy is so occupied with his own line and behavior of his car that he's unaware of that you're coming up at such a great different speed. So it was um, very bad. Was it, it was, was it a bad. better experience when you got into the, the leading cars? You got into the really quick cars at Le Mans. Oh, that was easy. <laughs> Talking about that, it was it was nice. But but I'm not quite finished with this. Fort Capri race because down the straight at six in the morning or five in the morning I thought I wish the damn thing would blow up because it was such an and it did <laughs> I didn't ref it or anything I didn't force it uh, then I slowly made my way back to the pits and I said I'm so broken, sorry it's broken <laughs> singing it rather than saying it and they said ah then you drive the other one <laughs> oh I thought no and then Jerry came up quickly and he said don't you want to drive? I said, would you like to? He said, yeah, of course I would. So he drove it, and it was nice. And I won the class, so it was okay. But the class win in Monarch, in, 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 in Le Mans is, is not exactly a, a very valuable one. You know, manufacturers can make something of it, say won the class, but nobody uh, looks at it twice, you know, this sort of thing. Um, it's for those it's different now, I must must put that on it's different now so when you have a class win now and it's hotly contested different groups that's different but it wasn't then hotly contested we were sort of trying to be polite yeah, stay out of the way um, for those of you watching on the video you might have seen us all jump then um, that's not because someone's been shot down here at Goodwood um, that was just a door slamming um, otherwise it would look very strange just all three of us going <laughs> we're not they're not sort of electric seats or anything um, Jochen, I'm going to take some readers' questions, yeah. and I've got one here from uh, Lucio Chiodi. I think I've pronounced that right. Um, you shared the car with so many drivers. Who do you think was the best of your teammates, and with whom did you most enjoy racing together? Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, the one I drove longest with was Jackie X, and I, I really loved him. Great kid, wonderful, wonderful co-pilot, or if you want a team. Um, partner it was really a team partner it was not a there was no competition between us as such <coughs> sometimes I was quicker sometimes he was quicker <coughs> we had no problems with that and of course I drove with Jackie Stewart not now 
I drove with Schechter, with the Caprice still. I drove with um, La Rousse. I drove with uh, Marseille, I think, as well. With Fitzpatrick, with... Uh, <coughs> they were all nice. You know, they were all nice. We never had <coughs> any misgiving. I never had a very unpleasant sort of team partner. I, I couldn't think of one. I had more difficult ones, like much later, if you like, in the forms of Michael Schumacher, <laughs> who wouldn't leave a car alone. I mean, at night, you know, when I said, leave the car, it's good. He said, well, maybe we can do something. And I said, what? He said, well, I don't know, but yeah, maybe we can improve it. And so on. He, at 10 o'clock at night, he was still at it. And I thought, ah, oh, <laughs> just leave it alone, because that's, that's irksome for somebody who's 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he never changed it to the worst, so it was okay. <laughs> I don't think he ever gained much by doing that, but that's the way his mind ticked and the way it's the way he worked. The um, I think you've just answered Andrew Oates's question. Um, no, sorry, Bob Spry's question. Um, he was asking uh, whether any co-drivers who drove you mad. I, I, I guess Michael Schumacher would would be that one then. Well, this was sort of near the end of. Uh, your career, and you, um, you were sort of you were a mentor to that that trio of cyber Mercedes drivers, um, Frentzen, uh, Wendlinger, and Schumacher. Could you? I mean, you were talking a little bit about Michael there. Could you tell even then that he was different? He was had something else. Oh yeah, I could tell that. Yes, that was everybody could see that he was different. He was more meticulous. He didn't seem to be <coughs> outwardly that much quicker than the others, because they all reach about the same time after some lapses but um, you know the, the, the freshest and the easiest one seemed Frenson driving wise but um, Frenson was a happy-go-lucky guy more sort of in my line you know quick but um, didn't reflect too much on it but um, <coughs> Michael always worked on it and then at the end he knew why he was quick and how he could improve and so on so he always honed his driving or his style and you know suited to the car best and all that and he wanted the car to be driven in a very specific way. Sometimes after race, we got back and he said, are you coming go-karting tomorrow? I said, don't you want to rest today? He said, no, let's go go-karting. So, <coughs> and then he drove. I drove a few laps and he laughed himself silly over that. <laughs> and uh, I was quick in the quick corners <laughs> when he didn't have to back off. <laughs> but I was not so quick in the technical end, uh, yeah. you know, with left and right and all that. But then I took times and he wanted to see what was quicker, what was better. Um, you know, in various sections, and I said, well, here you improved, there you lost a bit. And um, I could see, he said, I want to drive my Formula One like that. I want to adjust the Ferrari to this sort of go-kart driving style. And that's what he did. He braked left, and he was already then on the swaddle, and he kept it sort of on a constant slide. And I could see it, but to do is another thing. You know, I could, in the beginning, I remember one, one particular race with the GTA, in, uh, with the 1300 in Zolder, driving against the Mini, which was from Woodhouse in Hamburg. Christian Schmeier, very quick car, good driver too. But anyway, so I drove, and I had these funny driving shoes, which are leather socks, if you like. And I braked, and I had my side of my foot on the swaddle at the same time, and I could drive it like this. And it was exactly that's what they, what they later did, uh, driving like that with the left and the right. And, um, you know, but I could sense it then that this was the right way of doing it. It was perfect, you know, you got it in and you held it with half your foot and all that. And, 
you know, later we never had the option of driving it always because of the different cars, different pedals often. It didn't always work the same way. And um, later with the brake on the lift and left foot braking generally made it all different. Would you, by this, in Formula Ford, were you by now thinking, right, Formula One is where I want to be? Was that, was that as soon as you had tasted Formula Ford? Was that how quick it was or did that... No, I mean, I started watching Formula One um, because obviously 76 when I won my championships, um, of course, the great um, James Hunt won his world championship. And also, um, we had um, the, the Formula 5000s were sometimes the backup race. Um, we were the backup race of <laughs> Formula 5000. Interesting way of looking at it. I got, I got lost there a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And you, you, know, you saw people like Teddy Pellet, um, um, uh, Alan Jones in the Thursday's car, and you saw these great big thundering 5000s um, coming through uh, Russell at, at Snet and places like that. And I used to just think, wow, wouldn't that be something special? So that was the nearest I, I was really to Formula One. I don't think I really realized I was good enough or a possibility to get to Formula One until my second year of Formula Three. You know, when we won the first five races and people really sat up and started looking at Derek Warwick um, and knowing also that they were, it was still being run off the back of a trailer um, in, in a workshop with um, Warwick trailers. So um, I think that, um, I think then I started to think, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm good enough because you, you just didn't know because it, it wasn't our upbringing, you know. I think it's probably a good point to bring this up. Just something else I found in my archive. It's a you, picture I took in the Alton Park paddock in 1978. Try not to imagine how much, how much <laughs> junk Simon has in, in his archive. Um, I was taking a picture of Doug Niven's Beetle, but in the background there, and again, this isn't going to work particularly well on the podcast. You'll see a, you'll a, see a photo old, on the video. A knackered old bus with Warwick, Warwick Trailers, British International Formula. That is a championship winning team. Operating. Yeah, can, you, can you... Can you Reconcile that a with knackered, a knackered old Sorry, bus. It's a, it's a lovely. It's I was a, wondering whether he was going to get away with that. It was a lovely knack. It's a lovely knackered old bus. We we spent <laughs> we spent six months building that knackered old bus, and it was our pride and joy because we'd put the car in the back and we'd sleep in the front. Yeah. And uh, we went to Monaco, um, sleeping in the front of the of, of the bus um, and preparing the car out the back. Um, that. That knackered old bus was the pride and joy of Warwick trailers. <laughs> let me tell you. No, it was it was it was um, it was it was great to be able to go racing and uh, keep the community together, keep all the all my mechanics and everybody together. And um, at that time, obviously, I'd, I'd, I'd met my wife, and um, well, she, I'd met my wife actually in um, when I was doing oval racing. Um, so she was uh, uh, she came all the way through all that. So it was it was great racing. You know, what I realise now with hindsight. Yeah, that how we won those races in Formula 3, how we had the success we had, I have no idea. When you're racing against uh, Nelson Piquet in the might of Rout, because Rout was really behind Piquet, you know, he was getting live engines from Pedrozani, the Nova Motors, um, and I had this one engine that I just used to cherish day after day after day. Um, it just, it goes to show that, you know, we were, we were competing well above um, where we should be, that's for sure. The, uh, I read somewhere, I think it was with the lunch with Simon Taylor you did, uh, that the F3, the step up to F3 wouldn't have happened uh, if it wasn't for a phone call <laughs> asking for a, a ridiculous number of trailers that you didn't actually have space or time to build. In, in, in um, the end of 76, we were flat out in the trailer business. Um, and I was trying to convince my um, father to go Formula 3. Um, we were looking at the Chevron B38, 
um, again, my mad uncle and I got together and we put this budget together that Formula 3 was going to cost us £10,000. Um, and we went to my dad with this budget and said, this is what it's going to cost us. We had a bit of money from BP and a few um, private um, individuals. Um, and then um, our salesman came to us and said, um, we just had a, um, a, a, an inquiry from Saudi Arabia uh, for six bow trailers. And these just flatbed long trailers, um, what we call, we used to put bows on, bows of straw. Um, and, and I remember um, my dad saying, absolutely no way, we can't fit no more in, we're working every hour God sends, you know, we just can't do no more. Um, and, and I remember Pete Rawlings, our salesman, saying, well, I've got to go back and tell him something. And he said, oh, well, well quote, three times the price. So I remember the number, it was six, we, we had to do six trailers, and it was £6,000 a trailer. And we, we were knocking them out for 500 quid or something. I mean, it was ridiculous. And so we went back and, and quoted these six trailers, six grand a piece, and they said yes. <laughs> well, they come back to us, and we and, and on the on, just on the back of that one order, and and Dad, Stan, uh, myself, and my two two mechanics worked nights to build those six trailers. We never used the, the the normal hours, so we could actually say that the the profit from those cars actually ran the F3 cars, um, and it was just that order that took us through uh, to Formula Three. Um, so the the move to Renault, it must have been like night and day going from Tolman to Renault, wasn't it? In well, it was also night and day going from '82 to '83. Um, the '83 car was a proper racing car. You know, you could feel it. You understood what was going on. Of course, it kept breaking down, and we were the only driver, I think, in the last four Grand Prix to finish in the points. So we had our first points ever for Tolman in Zandvoort um, that year in '83, um, and um, so then things really turned around for me as a, as a driver. A lot of other people were talking about me. Um, and, um, and obviously we, uh, we started speaking to uh, Renault, uh, for, uh, to LaRousse uh, for the 84 season. And, um, and I always remember because we sort of negotiated, we knew where we were gonna be. Um, and I'd already spoken to Tolman um, and to Alex Hawkridge. And we were at the racing car show at the end of 83. And um, my dad, my father rang me and said, um, are you sat down, boy? And I'm thinking, oh, no, it's, it's turned to crap, you know? Um, and I said, um, come on, Dad, just tell me, what, what is it, what is it? And he said, um, I've just had a telex through um, <laughs> confirming your drive from LaRousse. And he told me what the number was, how much it was and everything. And we got very drunk that night. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, I'm driving for a works team. You know, I'm driving for, um, for Renault, you know, one of the, the, the greatest teams in Formula One at that stage, I thought. And, um, you know, it was uh, at that time I knew it was going to be Patrick Tambay was the other driver. I always say the second driver. He doesn't really like that, <laughs> but um, the second driver. And, um, and 84 was just fantastic. The car was just amazing. Again, you know, we had too many failures. Um, you know, Grand Prix driver today, I have no idea what it was like to drive back in the 80s. You know, you, you, you broke down in more races than you, you finished, you know. So it was a difficult time. We almost won the first time out in, um, in Brazil. Um, and, you know, we were normally quicker than Patrick. Um, and then the crunch came at the British Grand Prix 84. Um, and it was a great race at Brands Hatch. I ended up finishing 32 year second. anniversary this Friday. Uh, yeah, so yeah. you said, yeah. So, yeah, I finished second. Um, but LaRousse had put a lot of pressure on me uh, to re sign for the 85 season. Um, I was already well in 
talks with um, Frank Williams to join uh, Williams in 85. I had a little bit of a conversation with Ferrari, because remember, we didn't have managers in them days, so it was down to me. Um, but I, I spoke to um, the terrible three, which was Alan Henry, Nigel Roebuck, and Morris Hamilton, who were my chief advisors. Um, and between us, we um, quite rightly said uh, the decision was to stay with Renault for 85. And of course, it was a disaster because we lost LaRousse, we lost Michel Tetu, our, our, our chief designer, we lost Mijo, our aerodynamicist, and about three or four other engineers, lost them all. Um, um, so the 85 car came out, um, we took it to Brazil, um, beginning of 85, and it was three and a half seconds slower than the 84 car. Um, and of course, 85 is history, as they say, you know, it was a dreadful car, um, it was a dangerous car, um, and then my career really took a bit of a dip, I suppose. But it, it, where one door closes, I suppose, and another one opens, and that's, that's when you got into sports cars and uh, you had so much success in those. Um, do you look back on it and think, well, actually, while it was a, sort of a decision in hindsight, wasn't a great one, it did open that door for in the, into sports cars? Look, I look back in my career and could I have won Grand Prix? Yes. Could I have been world champion? Yes. If I didn't have that self-belief, there's no point being a driver in the first place. Um, do I regret not signing for Williams? No. You know, do I regret all these things? No. I had a fantastic career. I drove some fantastic cars. And I'm here. I, ha I did not break a finger um, in arguably some of the most dangerous times in Formula One. Um, so what have I got to be sad about, you know? Um, I was disappointed at the end of 85 when Senna um, uh, um, ended up getting rid of my contract with Lotus because um, I'd love to have been teammates with Ayrton. Obviously, he didn't want me to be teammates with him. So that's a backhanded compliment in he some ways. He sent you a Christmas card, though, didn't he? He sent me a Christmas card um, and a New Year's card wishing me all the best for 86. Now, Thanks. remember, 86, I didn't have anything. <laughs> you know? So I, but I, I seriously believe that he just thought I would pick up another drive, you know, and he didn't think I, he was finishing my career. I think he just thought that Lotus couldn't produce two number one cars and he didn't want this Brit that he thought was maybe a threat um, on the other side of the garage. How did you get to find out about the, the, the thing? Well, I'd, I'd signed my contract and I was called back up to Lotus um, Christmas 85, um, all bullshit thinking they're going to sign and, and obviously give me the, uh, the signing on fee, if you like, just to be told that they've changed their mind, they're not signing me, they've torn my contract up. Um, and obviously I asked for an explanation. They said, Ayrton don't want you in the team. You know, he, the, the sponsorship is all around Ayrton. The sponsors have backed him um, and we've decided to go a different way. And I said, well, hang on a minute. You know, the, all the drives are gone. You know, I've got nowhere to go. Um, but, you know, they, uh, Ayrton, quite rightly, they followed him because he, at that time, looked something special. And obviously, um, history has proved that he was, was. he was more than something <laughs> special. <laughs> um, we haven't got too long left, so I must uh, rattle through some of these questions. Okay. Um, but there's quite a nice one here about you know what we were just talking about um, from Stephen, who says, "Eau Rouge in a mid '80s turbo car in qualifying, or Mulsan Kink in a Jaguar before the chicanes were installed." Frightening. Yeah, both of them. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think both of them would be. I think he's wondering which you prefer. I, well, I think I, I prefer you know, to watch. I get disappointed when I hear um, modern day guys talk about Eau Rouge because 
it's almost a straight now. It's not even a lift for these guys. For us, I mean, as you went down the hill after after turn one, you had to grab hold of your watsits in tight, <laughs> and and you were just prayed that you come out the other side. It was it was pretty special. Um, the Mulsan um, kink, um, you know, we were we were approaching that at 400 kilometers an hour um, in a car that was very, very floaty, very, very. You had to drive your Le Mans car with with almost with kid gloves, with uh, with fingertips, you know. Um, it was very, very, um, very, very difficult. And you had Porsche 911s and slow WMs and things floating around yeah. outside of you as well. But you see, this is where stock cars maybe come out because, mm. you know, I was used to overtaking cars and being overtaking and have them on the right side and the left side and all that sort of stuff. I enjoyed it. I love Le Mans. You give me it every day. I mean, I just, I just, you know, I do three stints in the night because, you know, nobody else wanted to, you know. If it was raining and it was dark, you know, put Warwick in for three <laughs> stints, you know. Go and have a cup of tea. I love my time at sports cars, you know, because uh, unlike Formula One, I always had the best car or one of the best cars. So, you know, I was I won races straight away. 86 with Jaguar, 91 with Jaguar, 92 world champion and Le Mans with Peugeot. Um, and it, and, and it kind of re, reconfirms that in the right car you can win, and and I know this is this is this is going to come across awkward for some people. Winning is easy when you qualify twenty sixth and you work your off and finish seventh. The drive of your life, and I can name one when I was with Arrows um, at Suzuka, and you get back to the pits and they've already gone to the airport. And, you know, you've had the drive of your life and nobody knows about it. You know, it's they're the days that you've got to pick yourself up on the Monday morning and and convince yourself to go back and, and do it again. So I'd, during this era, obviously, you had Mansell come in and, and do some some touring car races. How how did that come about? Because um, uh, what, what a coup to get in 98 Mansell coming to race. And then obviously he did the, uh, the Toka shootout as well. Um, I, I can't claim total victory for it. It was it was a combination of myself and Robert Fennell from Donington Park, uh, the promoter of Donington Park. Robert, um, we had a thing called the Toka Shootout, which is an event we had at the end of every year for a bit of a, a non-championship event. It was a great event, um, and um, and Robert thought Robert saw an opportunity with Nigel having left the world championship and gone to IndyCar. He realised we realised that Nigel has never actually had never been. Uh, um, shown himself in front of the public since becoming a world champion in the UK. He's never performed in front of the public. So we made an approach to him jointly. We made an approach to him. We got Ford on, on side because at that stage he was racing in Indy cars with uh, Ford, with Ford as an engine supplier. So they put a car up for him. And um, we had just the most enormous uh, um, um, event, you know, they had 64,000 people. It was just huge uh, at, at Donington Park. And actually, if my memory serves me correct, I think that was more people than they had for the Formula One event um, at, at Donington. I think it probably, I was at the F1 race that year, yeah. and I think it probably was. I think yeah. it was, probably helped by the weather. I think the weather yeah, was the weather was rubbish for the F1 race. But, but it, was, it was just, and, and Nigel did everything you'd ever expect from him. Uh, um, he was fantastic with it with the public 
signing, did all the right things, said all the right things, had a huge shunt in the in in the thing, got carted off to hospital. He just ticked every box, you know. He did, it, we're, and then we got on the front page of all the newspapers the next day because you know, Nigel Mansell near death experience, and it, it was just ticked every box you could think of. Um, and during that ra- and, and and during that race, of course, he got he got tipped off into the. Uh, into the bridge by Tiff, and Tiff at that stage was a Top Gear presenter. So we had every, <laughs> it was a huge box ticking exercise that, that, that gave us everything we could have hoped for. Apparently when there are problems on track, they're discussed in, in the bus. What on earth does that mean? Um, <laughs> no, we have, um, in the bus we have a fairly sophisticated uh, system where we can review incidents. So. At the end of each race, when there's an incident to be reviewed, we pull the drivers up. Um, we have an incredibly sophisticated uh, onboard uh, uh, camera and logging system, so we can play and show every movement of the car inside and 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 and, and from their data. Um, so we have an incre- we have a very good system where they can sit there, explain their their point of view to the incident, and then we'll make the decision as to what their penalty is. That's that's the famous come to the bus. Uh, routine. Well, um, it's not exactly. It's not a star chamber or anything like that. It's just. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was intrigued. Yeah, but there, there are times when I don't bother playing the electronic equipment and just give bollockings. I mean, that that's 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 quite a common occurrence where, where I don't I don't get involved in the in in the uh, in the technical aspects. I just see what I saw with my own eyes and give them a bollocking. But that's how you run things. And how obviously you want it to be a good show because otherwise you're not going to get people through the gate, you're not going to get people watching on TV. And part of the good show is the close racing, it's the rubbing and racing, using NASCAR cliche, and the punters like a bit of rough and tumble. It's, it's obvious. But at the same time, you don't, want to, you don't want to condone poor driving standards. So how do you decide where the line should be drawn? Um, it, it's really difficult, and you can't, you can't just give a, a blanket rule because everything's different. Every, every sure. incident is different. Every corner is different, and all the circumstances are different. And, and it's very easy for even myself and, and people watching on TV to look at an incident and say, well, that's black and white. That's clear. That guy punted that guy off. But you don't know until you look back at the footage, maybe the guy in front, Mr. Gear. Or, you know, th- 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 so there's, there's things that are not obvious that you have to take into consideration. But yes, we look. Rubbing is racing, and and it's it, it's uh, th- there is a line over which you know once they get go over that line, we will chuck the book out. You know, and we're pretty good at chucking the book at them. But but uh, normally the 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 rule of the thumb is that if certainly if you take someone out of the race, we'll take you out of the race. So uh, that that's uh, and, unless there are extenuating circumstances, um, and if you spoil someone's race, we'll spoil your race too. Unless there are extenuating circumstances, someone's missed a, bra- missed a breaking point or whatever. But, but if it's if it's a straight punting up the uh, punted someone up the back, speared him off, we'll take action. Um, uh, so there is a line, and they and, and they know where that line is drawn. But a bit of side by side rubbing and all that stuff. It, when you've got cars, when you've got racing as fraught as we have, and cars as closely matched as we have, that's an inevitable consequence of it. I mean, have you been concerned? I mean, there have been some quite big accidents. Well, there were some quite big accidents in the 2016 BTCC. Um, the Snetterton start line, for example, there were a couple at Snet, weren't there? I mean, were, were, are you concerned that um, driving standards towards the back of the grid do need to be improved, or, or, or do you think it's reasonably well reined in? Um, 
you know, driving standards can always be improved, but and and without naming drivers, look, it's a, with any form of motorsport, the further down the grid you get, the more the less experienced drivers you're going to have. So that's where incidents come from. They never come from the sharp end of the grid. Um, major incidents come from middle of the grid backwards. Um, and that's usually as a result of compression and everything else. But yes, we do we do come down pretty hard on them. Um, and at the end of the day, they're, they're drivers. They don't want to have their own uh, uh, race compromised by anything that they do because it costs them a fortune to get it fixed. Just put them through a lot of the team a lot of time and expense they don't get a good race out of it so they're not they're not trying to go and drive like Pratt's either so we will give them you know we'll give them some encouragement and there's a lot of drivers this year we've we've sat down with them um and 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 gone through the incident slowly with them and shown them what where you could have avoided that and everything else so we don't just go in there and just thump the desk and it's say it's not just bollockings no not at all we, we, we've got a, such a f- sophisticated um, setup that we can show them exactly what their, their movements were and how to avoid that and everything else. Well, as I'm sure you'll all agree, we've had some absolutely fantastic guests in 2016. Thank you to all of them for sparing so much time and coming to talk to what can only be described as a quite unprofessional podcast team. We've got loads more coming up, though, in 2017. Some great names, really interesting guests, and I'm sure we'll have plenty more stories for you in the 12 months to come. Bye-bye for now. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer.